In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Be seated. Last week, we heard a riddle from Jesus. And today, we see one of the ways the truth of that riddle is rejected. So last week, we heard Jesus point to Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus goes on to ask, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And you all know the answer, that the Christ is a person who is both fully God and fully man. But we aren't simply... This isn't simply to have a a doctrinal answer about the nature of Jesus. For even in this riddle, in this question, we hear what Jesus has come to do. We hear about the enemies under his feet. So in this psalm, we have this promise. The second person of the Holy Trinity will take on your flesh in order to defeat your enemies sin, death, and the devil. He will trample them underfoot. And the only way that Jesus can accomplish this work is if he is who he says he is. So you see that the person of Christ and his work belong together. And this is what is under attack in today's gospel. Not everyone accepted the Christ. And here we see how they are opposed to both his person and his work. And this especially happened for the relatives of Jesus and the citizens of his hometown. Coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Where then did this man get all these things? The saying seems to be true. Familiarity does breed contempt. For the city of Nazareth, this preacher was familiar to them. Perhaps too familiar Many of them, I imagine, remember seeing Jesus growing up as a toddler and as a teenager. Surely this man couldn't be God. But the citizens of Nazareth can't object to Jesus according to the scriptures. Everything about him lined up perfectly with every aspect of Moses and the prophets. His miracles, his preaching, his life, Every bit of his conduct was entirely perfect. Maybe it was his perfection that bothered them. You know how bothersome it can be to be around someone who is never wrong and never makes mistakes. But the citizens of Nazareth are not alone in their skepticism. James and Joseph and Simon and Judah the household of the carpenter turned preacher man, well, they think Jesus is nuts too. 
So if the family of Jesus rejects him as the Messiah, why should the citizens of Nazareth believe in him if he can't even convince his own family he must be a poor Messiah indeed? Now, notice how their thinking goes. They aren't saying anything against Jesus' teaching or his work, at least not directly. They don't oppose him by the scriptures. They don't even admit explicitly that he can't be God. Because I think they really can't admit that they are offended by Jesus. And so their, their sinful flesh goes looking for some kind of a loophole. Somehow that they can claim another reason for being bothered and discontent than Jesus himself. So they can say, I remember when that preacher was a boy. He's nothing special. Or maybe there's conflict in the church. The pastor preaches too long. I don't feel God there. Other people seem upset about something. Maybe I should be upset too. The conduct of that service seems too rigid. Or maybe I'm just tired of the fact that the pastor keeps saying that I have sin and I need to repent. As it was in Nazareth, so it has been since the beginning. Remember how Cain took offense that righteous Abel offered the Lord an acceptable sacrifice? Cain's anger was really against God, but he convinced himself that he was angry with his brother. And so he thought that he could make things better with God by murdering his righteous brother. The Lord confronted Cain for his sins. Now, hearing your sin be exposed is never a comfortable experience. No one likes to find his false belief uncovered, especially in public. The people of Nazareth don't like what Jesus has to say, so they just refuse to listen. They won't consider repentance. They won't listen to the argument. They simply make excuses and ignore Jesus. Now our text says they took offense at him. Now usually the way that that statement might strike our ears in today's context, we think it means that Jesus said to them something that was objectively offensive. Or or maybe he didn't offer the requisite trigger warning before he spoke. But this idea of taking offense is more than just being offended or being bothered. It means that they sinned against Jesus. And it was an active opposition against him. Now, we'll we'll look at how this happens in a moment. But first, notice what they say. Is not this Joseph's son? That statement is slander. Because by this accusation, they mean to say that Jesus is not divine. They teach falsely about Jesus, 
and thus break the second commandment. They cannot accept that what Jesus says is true. They do not receive his word as life-giving wisdom. They want Jesus to leave them alone. And they are outside of salvation. In fact, so profound and strong is their rejection of Jesus that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They reject Jesus and all that Jesus has come to give. And Jesus permits them to reject him. He will not force them to believe. Now in the riddle we heard last week, Jesus taught who the Christ is and what he would come to do. But the citizens of Nazareth will have none of it. They reject the person of Jesus, and especially they reject his divinity. And if they reject the person of Jesus, that means they also reject his work. Because if Jesus is not a true prophet, if he is not sent from God, then they can safely ignore his preaching against their sin. If he is not God in human flesh, then he cannot atone for the sins of the world. If Jesus is not the Christ, then he has no gift of salvation, and he only makes empty promises. And this sin of rejecting Jesus isn't unique to those people in Nazareth. This sin roots its way into your own heart and life. When you run up against a difficult passage of scripture that disagrees with your own ideas of right and wrong, it's easy to look for ways to get around the text. Our culture is different now. Times have changed. Jesus can't mean that literally, can he? And they took offense at Jesus. Or maybe the attack goes to the text directly. Who says that a little white lie could really be wrong? Who says that women can't be pastors? Who says that I should be in church every week? Who says we can't just let love be love? Who says I should talk to my pastor? Who says I should confess my sins? And they took offense at Jesus. It's wrong to not honor a prophet in his own hometown. God has instituted parents in homes, and it's wrong to dishonor them. Scripture says to submit to your leaders and to pray for them. And we are all to be attentive in gladly hearing and learning our Lord's word. But they took offense at Jesus. And why wouldn't they take offense? Jesus' word directly opposes their sinful flesh. Jesus' word opposes the preaching of the old Adam. Jesus' word comes and crushes my own selfish ideas, the doctrines that our culture holds in high esteem. But they took offense at Jesus. Jesus says, I can't be a Christian 
and believe whatever I want about the order of creation, that I can't think whatever I want about God's gifts of marriage and chastity, that I can't bless God and curse my neighbor and murder his reputation at the same time, that I can't be bitter about the life God has given me and despise my neighbor for the life that God has given him and a whole host of other things taught in the scriptures. But they took offense at Jesus. The word of Jesus is scandalous and offensive, even for us. This word is scandalous and offensive because it points to and flows from the very cross of Christ. The cross and its preaching are a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But even though the people of Nazareth rejected the person of Jesus, he didn't stop being fully God and fully man. Even though his relatives and friends cast aside his saving work, it didn't prevent him from going to the cross and dying for their sins. Their rejection of him and their offense at his word didn't stop him from loving them. It was for that very reason that the word became flesh. It's why he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of his virgin mother. The second person of the most holy trinity did not become man to please himself or to placate the sensitivities of others. He became man to please his father. He became man in order, for the, in order to die for those who despise and betray and reject him. For everyone who would be scandalized by his word and his work, he loves those who take offense at him. He became man to restore you to himself, to redeem and sanctify and keep you as his own, to forgive and remove your offense at his word. And he accomplished all this by his death and resurrection. And no matter how the people of Nazareth stopped up their ears and mocked Jesus and sinned against him, no matter how much his gracious words offended their sinful ears, the preaching of Jesus' person and work continues to go forth. In the 40 days before his ascension, Jesus himself preached about the purpose of his resurrection and his saving work. St. Luke writes in Acts, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And St. Paul tells us that Jesus also appeared to James, whom we celebrate today. Now, in one way, we can say we don't know a whole lot about this man, because trying to sort, all, sort out all the men named James in the New Testament is even, a little more, is even more difficult than keeping track of all the Marys, because there's just so many of them. And it gets even more complicated when we consider that the Greek word for brother 
doesn't always or only mean a biological blood brother. Sometimes it means a close relative, perhaps like a cousin. And Jesus uses the term to refer specifically to the twelve apostles. And the scriptures apply it more broadly to those of the family of faith. But whatever we know of James, we know with more certainty of Christ. We know that the word of Jesus is necessary for salvation. James is included in those who reject Jesus at Nazareth. James opposes Jesus. He's not part of the family of faith, even though he is family with Jesus. And there is some question about how exactly James might be related, whether he is he's probably a stepbrother of Jesus, but whether this was a child of Joseph from a previous marriage um, and that Joseph was widowed, or that this was from later on with Joseph and Mary, um, we don't know. But someone who belonged to Jesus' own household rejected him and took offense at his word. And yet, after our Lord's resurrection, Jesus makes a point of appearing to James and preaching to him about his death and resurrection. His brother Jesus never gave up on him. The word of God never returned to him void, never fails to accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. By his Holy Spirit, his word goes forth, creating and sustaining faith in those who hear it, where and when it pleases God. And James came to faith. James and Jesus did not share an earthly father, but now, through faith in God's word, they have the same heavenly father. And Jesus also knows that family life can be something of a mess. Offenses given and taken, hurting and harming those we love the most. And yet, it is within the family where the Lord's gospel is applied. In the home, the gospel is preached between sinners, among brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, parents and children, husbands and wives. Christian households live upon the gospel foundation of confession and absolution, repentance and faith, submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. And even more so in the family of the church. For this too, as the place of close relationships, can be a place for conflict, for brothers sinning against and scandalizing each other. And yet, this is also where the gospel is preached, where sins are forgiven and removed. And even more than that, it is the place where the body and blood of God himself are given to you. It's the place where we learn not to be scandalized by the word of Jesus, but to love all that he says and to teach every word. In this family gathering, prayers are offered for those who do not yet believe, 
for those who are still scandalized by Jesus, who still take offense at his word. It's part of what the church does when she prays for all people according to their needs. Now, God has not given us a promise that this person or that will come to repentance. But we know that it is his will that all people are saved. We know that Jesus died for all. And so we can pray in earnest faith and respond with joy that our Lord's word is still going out. Even though the word of Jesus scandalizes the unbelievers, we hold tightly to this word, for we know it is the life-giving word of Jesus. And then, where and when it pleases God, he gives faith. And then he also gives strength to confess that faith. James, the brother of our Lord, had that opportunity. In 62 AD, the early church historian Eusebius tells us what happened when the Pharisees wanted James to preach against Christ. The Pharisees came to him and said, We entreat you, restrain the people, for they've gone astray in their opinions about Jesus, as if he were the Christ. We entreat you to persuade all who have come here for the day of the Passover concerning Jesus, for we all listen to your persuasion. Take your stand, then, upon the summit of the temple, that from that elevated spot you may be clearly seen, and your words may be plainly audible to all the people. And so James ascended the temple in order to speak. But his testimony was not as the Pharisees desired, because James was no longer scandalized by Jesus. Rather, his bold testimony rang out. Christ himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he shall come on the clouds of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees then said to themselves, We have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus, but let us go up and throw him down, that they may be afraid and not believe him. James was then thrown down from the summit of the temple. And seeing that the fall did not kill him, the scribes and Pharisees then stoned and beat him to death. Jesus, the brother of James, was tortured and crucified. St. James was beaten and stoned. He suffered for the name of Christ. He was a martyr, a faithful witness even unto death, being attached to the one who scandalizes the world meant that he would suffer. But the Lord strengthened him to be a faithful witness even to death. And so it is for you. And as it is for St. James, the brother of our Lord, Jesus rejoices to call you brothers. Christ is your brother, not only according to the flesh, but also by adoption. Adopted children are true children. You are a sibling of the Son of Mary, a sibling of the Son of God. 
You are a member of his household, the church. His father is your father. Though we all share the same earthly fatherhood of Adam, by whom we receive hearts that take offense at Jesus' word, we are now baptized and adopted into the household of God, where we all share the same Father, and where we have holy communion in one fellowship together. In this place, we all find life in his word. And so you are blessed in Christ Jesus. Come, follow me, the Savior spake. Then let us follow Christ our Lord and take the cross appointed. And firmly clinging to his word in suffering be undaunted. For those who bear the battle strain, the crown of heavenly life obtain. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. In the peace of God, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.